Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 31st, 2021, Wednesday, last day of August, uh, on Keynote. I want to Thank all of you for being such loyal viewers and listeners. The show's up now to over a million downloads a year, making it one of the top podcasts, certainly podcasts about books in the world, certainly top five podcasts, which is very, very impressive. So thank you all. Some people have said to me, what is the key to your success as a podcaster? I don't actually know. I have lots of critics. Uh, but one person suggested that I make my guests uncomfortable. I bring out the discomfort. I don't ask easy questions. And I try to find questions that actually make them uncomfortable. So discomfort may be the real reason why Keen On has taken off. We're doing a show today on discomfort with the great priest, the chief priest of discomfort, Sterling Hawkins. Uh, gave a TEDx speech, um, which uh, got over 100,000 views. His ideas on hunting discomfort uh, got him another TED speech, and it's even generated a book, Hunting Discomfort, How to Get Breakthrough Results in Life and Business No Matter What. Sterling is joining us from Denver, Colorado. Sterling, welcome. Andrew, great to be on. Perfect. I'm in the right place. What is the way to to hunt Sterling Hawkins' discomfort? Well, I'll tell you, have you heard of 75 Hard? No. It's a fitness challenge where you have to eat certain things and exercise a certain amount every day and sleep a certain amount of hours. And I'm in the middle of it right now. And it's called 75 Hard for a reason. It is hard and it's pushing the comfort zone. Uh, but I try to have at least one thing that's pushing me outside of where I'm comfortable that I'm in process of at all times. Well, one of the things on your website, um, Sterling, it's certainly a, a website not shy to sell Sterling. Uh, there's a little <laughs> button you. at the top in yellow that says book Sterling. Uh, book him, of course, to make speeches. But was the act of writing a book Sterling, did that make you uncomfortable? You're not naturally a writer. You're um, you're a, a speech giver. You're someone who coaches executives in how to be more self confident. What did did right. writing or does writing make you uncomfortable? Does it bring out your discomfort? It certainly did, and speaking did early on as well. You know, I've been speaking somewhere around six years now, and people had been telling me, "Certainly, you got to write a book. You got to write a book." And I just kept putting it off and putting it off and. That's oftentimes what we do with the discomforts that make the biggest difference from us. We take a page out of Shakespeare and say, well, tomorrow, 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 and tomorrow for many of us never comes. And when the pandemic hit, all the excuses that I had, I'm too busy, I'm traveling too much, I've got all these things going on, evaporated. I said, you know what, Sterling, you're avoiding discomfort right here. And with that, I started looking at publishers and thus the process began. Hugely uncomfortable, but massively fulfilling at the same time. Some of these books by 
executive coaches, Sterling, are really written by someone else. I trust that you wrote this book yourself. You didn't get an outside editor. I did. Uh, I worked with many editors, but more copywriting editors. Um, you know, countless people helped me make it what it actually became. But yeah, I, I wrote every word, every sentence in there. Um, and it was an uncomfortable process. You know, I, I sat myself down every day at about 530 in the morning, grabbed my coffee, had meditated and looked for the inspiration to write. And that inspiration didn't come every single day, but I did put some words on the page. And uh, like I said, after a lot of hard work and a lot of support from other people, it, it turns into a, a book that I'm, I'm quite proud of, especially not being a natural born writer, at least in my own view. The good days, Sterling, as you know, um, as a writer, uh, are fun, but they're rare. Mm. You don't yeah. learn much from the good days. It's the bad days you learn from. What did you learn as uh, a, a professional writer, even if it's not your main gig, that could help other writers? What, what lessons of discomfort can you bring to a um, writing community, as opposed to the kind of community that you tend to teach, which is an executive corporate community. Yeah, well, I found it a very humbling process. And instead of approaching the book from the standpoint of, I know all these things and now I just need to put them in the book, I actually approached it from an angle of, I don't really know much of anything. And I certainly don't know how to get it on this page in a way that one conveys something meaningful and two is interesting for somebody else to read. And approaching it like that helped me look for more research, do some additional case studies, do a lot of self-reflection to understand my topic at a much, much deeper level. And I found, you know, we do newsletters and blogs on a pretty regular basis, and I've started writing my blogs that way. And in, in a place where I wouldn't hear from many people prior, now I get a couple of messages a week saying, Sterling, you know, this made this difference. This is what I'm going to do differently. Here's where I see it in my personal life or my company or in my writing. And so that switch in, in really a mindset of I already know what I'm going to write to I'm going to discover something while writing was huge for me, albeit, of course, uncomfortable. So are you suggesting, Sterling, that humility and discomfort go together? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the humility that lets us learn something new. You know, in the book, I talk about lenses of belief, lenses of belief about yourself, others, or your company or the world around you. And it's those lenses of belief that are giving us the results that we have in life, personally and professionally. And when you take a healthy dose of humility, you step back from those lenses of belief and you start to analyze, are those the most effective ways to look at things? You know, am I maybe a little bit different than I thought? Is, are others, is the world, is what I'm writing maybe not exactly what I had originally planned when I was going in? So having some humility, I think, gives somebody the, the freedom, the latitude to get up and outside of their comfort zone, the things that they already know. And when you do that, you start to not only discover new things, but break your status quo and generate uh, oftentimes breakthrough results. Sterling, one of the folk heroes of the industry encouraging breakthrough results is Elon Musk. I know you're an admirer of, of him. We did a show very much with Tim Higgins, um, Wall Street Journal writer, whose paperback, uh, we did it yesterday, whose paperback 
power play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the bet of the century just came out and, mm. and discussing Musk, and he recognizes Musk's strengths and weaknesses. He said one of Musk's great weaknesses, at least at Tesla, was he didn't really listen very well. He has no mm. humility. Um, mm-hmm. Do would I mean you don't know? Obviously, you haven't written books on Musk. You haven't reported on him. But what is it about a man like Musk who most people would assume doesn't have humility that gives you so so much admiration? Given that you find humility and discomfort to be so intimate, uh, intimately linked. Well, you know, I don't know if I agree with that. And, you know, all the disclaimers about that. I don't know uh, Musk personally. I haven't done a lot of research on him. But I do know that when he got out of PayPal early on, he put just about all the money he had into Tesla, um, SolarCity, and the other projects he was working on. So much so, uh, you know, folklore at least says that he was sleeping on friends' couches. Now, I don't know if that translates. i got to make the joke. Um, Yeah. Uh, or on friends' wives. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know about any of that, but I can say that I have to believe that that would be a massively humbling experience. You know, being extremely successful, having eight figures in your bank account, and then going to a place where you're sleeping on friends' couches. You know, it, it gives you pause to to step back. And like well, I said, I, 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 I don't take know your him. Point but... That he was willing to to gamble everything. But that's mm-hmm. different from listening, from being able to listen, and at least according to um, uh, at least according to Higgins, Tim Higgins, mm. Musk is a very bad listener. He knows what he wants to hear, and if he doesn't hear it, then he simply switches off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that would be just avoidance of discomfort. And I think one of my pet peeves is people willing to have difficult conversations, whether they're talking about politics, business direction, family direction, community direction, any of that. I I think, you know, if you look at the brain science, very little of what our unconscious mind is processing actually gets translated into conscious thought. It's something like 0.0000046% conscious. And that, that's a humbling number in and of itself. But if you consider that, none of us really know much of anything going on around us. And as yeah, we can approach I, I, conversations. I you're right. And um, this is certainly compounded by our echo chamber culture of social media. Right. I find this a lot on my show when I have conservatives that don't always like to be challenged. When I have progressives, they don't always like to be challenged. Does this play out? Uh, Sterling in our personal lives too. Are we surrounding ourselves with people who make us comfortable rather than uncomfortable? Oftentimes, yes. You know, we'll find people that reinforce the beliefs that we already have. Uh, You know, we saw it, especially during the election a couple of years ago, where people said, many of them anyways, I'm not friends with you anymore. I'm unfriending you. I'm only going to pay attention to these views, these beliefs, people that are kind of in line with what I'm thinking. And there was always an excuse for it, right? I'm open to other views except for this scenario. But I think none of us can see the the truth. It's only through the difficult conversations can we reach a greater truth. And, you know, from a, uh, if we look at it as like from a, a survival standpoint, our ancestors were forced to deal with the source of their discomfort, right? Like 
if our ancestors had avoided the discomfort of being cold, well, they probably wouldn't be our ancestors, right? They had to figure out how to stay warm in order to survive. Well, the luxuries of modernity have afforded us uh, the ability to not have to deal with the source of that discomfort, which is by definition uncomfortable. So we can surround ourselves with, with people in situations that feel good, but aren't necessarily leading to a good place. And worse yet, certainly aren't taking steps towards solving why you have that discomfort in the first place. Is there a, a kind of a weird, I won't say a contradiction, but this hmm. strange um, sort of the almost like a two truths at the heart of your philosophy. On the one hand, you want us to build resilience. Here's something you wrote in Fast Company. Here's something you yeah. wrote for Inc. Uh, indications that your business career is limited by self-doubt. That was the title of, um, of, of your piece in Inc. But you're That's saying right. that to become strong, we need self-doubt. So, so what's the role of self-doubt in the hunting discomfort world? Is yeah, it to be more doubtful or less doubtful? Or are you suggesting that the more inner doubt we have, the less inner doubt, the, le the less external inner doubt we have? Is that what you're arguing? Well, here's how I think about it. I, I think self-doubt's important because it will tell you what's important to you, right? I had a lot of self-doubt about my public speaking, especially early on, because it was important to me. It was important for me to you know, take all those people's time and make a difference with the time that I was spending with them. So it told me, hey, this is something that's on your horizon, that's in your trajectory, that's really important to you. Now, the, the trick is not letting that discomfort stop you, that self-doubt stop you. Had I listened to that self-doubt and sat on the couch and ordered a pizza and watched Netflix, I wouldn't be where I am today. And, you know, something similar could be said for many. It's looking at the self. -doubt. Where are, when you say where you are today, what does that mean? You mean you're in Denver, Colorado? I'm in Denver, Colorado. We built the community. I've written a book. I do uh, work with some of the largest companies in the world. Um, so you know, you've I, made yourself out of this uh theory of discomfort uh, i would attribute uh hunting discomfort the whole reason why i'm i've reached this level what were you like sure. before hunting discomfort sterling uh terrified of it, it you know I, I i joke like nobody came out of the womb nobody was born ready to hunt discomfort and nobody came out of the womb ready to avoid it, right? It's, it's a clean slate. So those discomforts that you have, that we all have, that I had, started somewhere. And um, I'd love to tell you it's because I was just super smart, but admittedly is because I was somewhat lucky. Founded a company with my dad and sold it to a group in Silicon Valley, uh, where it became part of this massive conglomerate that was the Apple Pay before Apple Pay. And we raised hundreds of millions of dollars, multi-billion dollar valuation. It was like living a scene out of Wolf of Wall Street. And very long, very dramatic story short, the company ended up collapsing when the housing market collapsed and we couldn't raise any additional funds. Now, had I hunted discomfort at that time, one, that company probably wouldn't have been in the shambles that it ended in. But two, I probably would have gone on to make something, learn something from that experience. But instead, I avoided it and I pretended I kept up this facade of success 
Well, my entire life fell apart underneath. And I ended up going from a gorgeous penthouse apartment in San Francisco to my parents' house. And spending time there, forced to move into your parents' house in your 30s is an incredibly humbling experience in and of itself, I can tell you. But I realized that what I was doing, it was, I was avoiding, denying, or just trying to survive discomfort. I wasn't turning into it. And as soon as I turned into it, not only did it start to transform my life, but others around me started to transform as well. Do you think there's something almost traditionally religious about your story and your message? Uh, if uh, you, you know, you, you made your name at least this second half of your life or this reinvented yeah. life through a, t uh, an, a, a TED speech. Yeah. One goes to TED to listen to articulate, aggressive, simultaneously brittle and confident men like you give speeches <laughs> about reinvention. Yeah. There's something, it may not be formally religious, but this is the old uh, playbook, religious playbook of, of American culture. Do you feel almost like a, uh, a religious figure, uh, an 18th or 19th century American uh, priest of some sort? I No, certainly not at all. And I, I don't think it's just uh, American history. I think it's human history. If you look at Joseph Campbell's work, um, you know, the, the narrative of a, a hero going into the unknown, supported by others to find new things is the premise of most religious philosophy. And you know, funny enough, is the foundation of a lot of movies and songs and stories as well. I, I certainly didn't invent it. I don't lead it. But I can say that my experience is similar to that, parallels that. And anybody that's created breakthrough results in writing, in their life, in their family, in their business, in anything, has taken that, that hero's journey in some shape or form. Have you given, you, you say you've been giving a lot of speeches. Do you sometimes give this the speech about hunting discomfort to a hostile audience? Oftentimes. Yeah. I, I mean, usually people, when they just look at hunting discomfort on the surface, they'll say, Sterling, you got to look at my business, my bank account, my family, all these things. I don't need to hunt discomfort. I'm living with it. But my response, and as the keynote walks people through, you're not hunting discomfort. You're rationalizing why you have that discomfort. When you're hunting discomfort, you are forever free of it. And I don't mean circumstantially free. I don't mean when you make a certain amount of money or close a certain client or marry a certain person. Those are circumstances. When you're free from the underlying discomforts, you are free no matter what happens in the world. And that's a journey that we go on in almost every keynote. Because if there's not many, there's at least some people looking at me like you're crazy, Sterling. But when they understand that they can free themselves at a fundamental level, that's where things start to shift. Is the goal success, Sterling, or is it happiness? And uh, Do success and happiness go together? You often hear the cliche, well, hmm. you don't get happy by getting rich. Yeah. Um, I, I think the goal is growth. But no well, matter growth, if you're... What do you mean? Like you get taller? <laughs> I, I wish. No, it's, it, it's self-growth, growing yourself as a person, where the things that you were stopped by, triggered by, worried about, thought were maybe impossible, no longer are gating factors for you. And that's what I mean by growth. 
And when we run our lives from a place of growth versus a place of defense or avoidance or survival, then any situation that comes down the road to us, we're able to take steps to get bigger from it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's an interesting subject. We, we've talked about death a lot on this show and the, mm. I guess, the discomfort for all of us. No one wants to die or most of us don't want to die. Right. Is there some sort of discomfort that's actually healthy, like approaching one's death? Are you suggesting that if we really live the Sterling Hawkins way, hmm. we will have, if not happy deaths, comfortable deaths? Uh, I don't know if I could say comfortable deaths, but I, I would say a more meaningful death. Uh, you know, I'm a, a big fan of Stephen Jacobson's work. And he, he says, knowing that you're going to die makes no difference. We all know it's coming at some point. It's inevitable. But when the doctor tells you you're dying, that's when you start to come to terms with what's really important in your life. And what I'm suggesting is that's a conversation that you can have now. Nobody needs to wait till their deathbed to really reflect on what's important to them, their family, themselves as a human being. And as you can at least start to access some of that, as you get closer to dying and when you die, the things around you, the people around you, the meaning in it for yourself will be fundamentally different. And if you call that comfort, then fair, I'm on board. But do you think you can really address that, confront that until you're actually in the situation. It's all very well saying, well, imagine I was dying and this is what I'm going to prioritize now. Yeah. But you can never really imagine you're dying until you are out, you are actually dying. I think that's true. Uh, and at the same time, I don't mean reflect on your, your death as an intellectual exercise. I mean it as an emotional one. You know, if you're just kind of going through the process, okay, what's important to me when I die, it's probably going to be superficial in nature. Right? You're just going to be rehashing things you've heard from other people or maybe you've said before. But when you take time, maybe hours, maybe days, maybe even weeks to sit back and say, if I was actually dying, what would that feel like? What does it feel like to say goodbye to everything and everybody that I've loved and I've known? And from that emotional standpoint, ideas are going to rise, things that are important that are going to arise that I guarantee you are not exactly what you think they are. And it's certainly not what you're going to get to if you do it as an intellectual exercise. I know you're a big fan of Malala, for example, the um, sure. Pakistani activist, Nobel Prize laureate, as well as Martin Luther King, another man yep. who comes up a lot on this show. Is the good life, uh, Sterling, a life led for others or for oneself? You talk about self-growth. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if Malala or MLK think of themselves in terms of self-growth. They think of yeah. their lives in terms of what they can do for others. Yeah. And I, I think when you make that transition where you start to free yourself of the discomforts, you know, the self-doubt, the challenges, uh, the fears of the unknown, then you're free to support others in what it is that they want to ultimately achieve. And I, I think the greats have certainly done that. And it's, it's a place to, I think, free yourself to. Again, not intellectually like, oh, I want to live for others, but really freeing yourself from the discomfort that's stopping you from supporting others in the first place. 
we did a show earlier this morning actually with Bill George, who's the oh, yeah. author of, he teaches at Harvard Business School, former mm-hmm. CEO of Medtronic, has a new book out, True North, emerging the emerging leader edition about leading authentically. And he was rather yeah. critical of leaders, tech leaders, successful leaders like Travis Kalalnik, as well as Elizabeth Holmes, of course, who wasn't, who isn't now at least successful. Yeah. Adam Newman, the founder of WeWorks, has just been funded again by Andreessen Horowitz. What's your take yeah. on guys like Kalalnik and Newman? Um, my guess is that they've taken some of your message to heart. I'm not sure if they've read your book, Hunting Discomfort. These are men led by discomfort. Newman didn't go away after the collapse of WeWork. He reinvented himself mm-hmm. and came back and convinced Mark Andreessen to write a check for $300 million. Yeah, uh, but these aren't good people, are they? Uh, 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 Bill George, in particular, was rather critical. He considers them frauds. Can you be a fraud and at the same time successfully hunt discomfort? Uh, well, I think hunting discomfort works for anybody and everybody. But you know, to your point, that doesn't mean that you're doing good. And, and I, I don't know any of those men personally, but I would suggest some of the actions that they're taking will probably wind up um, with their them being haunted by the ghosts of regret. You know, you get to the point where to go back to this idea of, that you are dying, you say, man, I wish I didn't treat those people like that. I wish I didn't um, lose those people's money, or at least I wish I handled it in a different way. So hunting discomfort works no matter where you apply it, but you do need to have a, kind of a North Star or a compass of what you ultimately want your life to be about, ideally a life of goodness that you can apply it towards. This sort of executive training culture is in some ways rather male, although less becoming less so. We had a sure. uh, a writer, Christy Hunter, Oscott on the show recently. She has a new book out, Begin Boldly, How Women Can Reimagine Risk, Embrace Uncertainty and Launch. Mm-hmm. A brilliant career in some ways it's dealing with similar territory to yours um, yeah. when it comes uh to hunting discomfort uh um is uh uh, uh sterling is is it more of a challenge for women than men or are women naturally uncomfortable which has always held them back more self-critical I think what's between us and the results that we want to create, and I mean results generally, could be money, time better spent, different relationships, or maybe it's just more joy and happiness, is for all of us discomfort. Could be different kinds of discomfort, and many of us, well, we will all meet it in different ways. But I think the process of moving through discomfort, hunting discomfort and growing from it is is a very individual journey. doesn't matter if you're male, female, non-binary, uh, it doesn't matter what culture Open to you everyone. Male. Exactly. And everyone. And, and by the way, it's not something that is only for the privileged either. You don't need money to hunt discomfort. Mm-hmm. You can White, do it black, turning to the person male, next female, to you. Exactly. Sex, straight, gay, bisexual, transgender, right. everybody. Everybody. It's an inside game. What about uh, smart machines? Uh, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know as if AI is at a point where 
it, it can self-reflect in a meaningful way that anywhere near parallels humanity. Although admittedly, I'm not an expert on any of that stuff. I do well, think to be human though, they would have yeah. to figure out how to do that. Well, that made you uncomfortable. It's a good question whether smart question. machines can hunt discomfort like we humans. If we watch Blade Runner, we talked about Blade Runner yesterday. Yeah. And uh, maybe that's the thing that for in the future, when we, when we have police officers hunting down machines, mm. uh, they'll be able to figure out the difference between machines and humans by knowing which is uncomfortable and which isn't. We, we okay. mentioned finally, um, Sterling, we mentioned um, uh, we, we mentioned Malala and we mentioned MLK, two of your heroes. One other model for someone they may not have read hunting discomfort, but whose life reflects your philosophy. Uh, Stephen Jacobson, I can't recommend him highly enough. Uh, I don't know him personally, but a big fan of Die Wise and all of his work. Uh, another one is James Shaw, who um, passed a couple of years ago, but all of his work is incredible. And I think the key thing for, for all of us, myself included, is having somebody that holds you accountable to do what you said you're going to do. Somebody inspires you, which both of those certainly do for me somebody that loves you and somebody that can mentor you, show you the tactics of going down the path. And if you've got folks around you or books you're reading that do those things for you, you'll be unstoppable no matter what you're doing. No matter what, as, as the words say behind you. Um, no matter what. Well, congratulations, um, Sterling, on the new book, Hunting Discomfort. I hope it's the first of many. What else are you reading these days in addition to your new book? Uh, so I'm going back to uh, Catcher in the Rye, an old J.D. Salinger book, and I I, re I have read multiple times, but I'm going back to as well as Michael Brown's The Presence Process. I've done hundreds, thousands of hours of growth and development work from yoga to breathing to meditation to you name it. And Michael Brown's work captures the essence of most all of that in the most succinct way I've, I've ever read.